This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 16th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. As the novel coronavirus spread across the planet, governments were willing to toss out a lot of policy ideas. Some adopted, others discarded. Cato's Diego Zuluaga details a few of the ideas that, though not adopted this time around, will be back and should be avoided like, well, like the plague. In any kind of uh, emergency or any time a demand for quick legislation uh, is is called for, uh, there are always ideas that people wanted to put in there, have w- always wanted anyway, uh, and they figure, well, this is this vehicle is moving, this legislation is moving, and I should get whatever it is that I want into that piece of legislation as well. Uh, there, there was this was a bit of a Christmas tree in the sense that it did have a lot of things that don't really seem to make a lot of sense with regard to spending, um, but a lot of things didn't make it in there. Uh, and you, uh, as we started talking just before uh, we started recording, uh, you said that doesn't mean those things are going to go away; they'll be back. So, so what were some of the bad ideas that you saw uh, discussed widely in this relief slash stimulus measure? Uh, that uh, you expect to come back? When the emergency stimulus bill was being discussed, there were two versions that were circulating at any point in time. One was the Senate version, which was primarily a Republican draft. And the other one was the House version that was primarily a Democratic draft and specifically one championed by the Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And in the Democratic draft, which, which was longer, there were a lot of interventions which I fear not only would have done very little to address the emergency, but might even have acted against the wish to get funds quickly into people's pockets and liquidity to businesses and so on. And I've compiled a little list and I've ranked them. And my top three are the following. The first is a cap, a 36% APR cap on interest rates that anyone could charge in America on any loans made, not only now, but in the future. The second one is the forgiveness, uh, partial or total, of student loans. And the third one is the um, introduction of digital accounts by the Federal Reserve. Now, let me explain one by one why they, I think they would be not only ineffective, but actually destructive. In an emergency, and we were discussing this in a previous podcast, Caleb, in an emergency, there's a sudden need for very quick access to cash by people, particularly who live paycheck to paycheck, who have irregular incomes because they work in the gig economy or otherwise are financially vulnerable. If you institute a federal cap on loan interest rates of 36%, which basically would only leave prime credit cards and personal lines of credit from banks, you're excluding from access to credit nationwide a whole host of people who don't have bank accounts or to have just a bank account but don't have any other uh, types of mainstream financial products. Uh, in various other forms of quick access to credit, you would be shutting down uh, immediately. Now, it should be no surprise to anyone that the people most affected by the economic impact of the COVID-19 emergency are the same people who are much more likely not to have a bank account, not to have access to a typical credit card, uh, to find themselves already stretched. They are immigrants, minorities, the young, single parents, and particularly women. All of those people would be disproportionately affected. So a 36% cap, even though it sounds grand because it would 
seem to reduce the cost of credit to everyone doesn't actually achieve that. All right. So uh, that's an uh, an obvious one and, and right in your wheelhouse. What were some of the other ideas that you heard? The second item was student loan forgiveness. Again, the emergency was used as a justification for um, lightening or eliminating the burden of student debt from borrowers. And the idea is that these people are already under financial distress. They're going to face potentially a labor market that is challenging if they're only just graduating. But the truth of the matter is that the people most affected work in industries that don't typically require college degrees, and they don't remunerate by college degree. their hospitality, transportation, um, entertainment, tourism. Uh, they're not activities to which college graduates typically uh, dedicate uh, their efforts, but they're also not ones that remunerate very well. So what you would be doing with student loan forgiveness, specifically what was floated in the House draft, was to forgive up to $10,000 uh, of everyone's student debt would be adding up to five or $600 billion to the national debt at a time when the deficit is, always, is already going to explode because of the other rescue measures. And you would mainly be helping people who, once this is over, and unless the expectations of most economists are contradicted, will have the easiest time returning to the labor market and will indeed be making the high five, if not six-figure salaries that will justify repaying those loans. So it's really a rescue of the well-to-do that is wholly inadequate. The, thir the third one that perhaps is a little more innovative-seeming, but I don't think would fit the bill either, is this idea to have the Fed set up accounts for individual people so that, for example, they can get their stimulus check from the IRS as quickly as possible. This was mentioned in the House draft, but since then, Sherrod Brown, who is the number two on the Senate Banking Committee, the highest ranking Democratic senator in the Senate Banking Committee, has introduced a separate bill that would require financial institutions essentially to set up these accounts within their systems for free on behalf of the Federal Reserve. The idea would be then that the funds disbursed as part of the stimulus, or perhaps even as part of other welfare programs in the future, would be dedicated to a separate account maintained by the Fed. It wouldn't require deposit insurance because, of course, the Fed can create as many dollars as it wants. Um, but first of all, it would be a tremendous logistical challenge to get this up and running. It is a major cost to financial institutions that wouldn't see any benefit out of this and, in fact, would be basically enabling a competitor and being mandated to be used as a utility for that purpose. But then also, uh, you would find yourself with um, a system that doesn't really accelerate payments to uh, people very much at all. because it will still still take the IRS a long time to process the funding information and you know collect all the details and uh, make sure that the person has filed their taxes so that they can disperse the funds adequately and so on. And you have many cheaper alternatives already in existence from prepaid cards to old-fashioned checks, which might be up and running or you know in in consumers' um, letterboxes more quickly than. Um, uh, you know, this this whole new system that the bill would set up. Um, and, and you would do that at a much lower cost. So it's really just a ploy to expand the powers of the Fed in a way that I don't even think Fed officials want them expanded and, and potentially completely change the nature of banking in America. What's your general take on, given what was actually included in the, this relief slash stimulus measure, what is your general take on how the financial elements of it 
are to be implemented. It seems like there is a lot of consternation about the speed with which this was passed and to whom these authorities are given. I think the focus is slightly misplaced because, as we were discussing previously, the main concern of people who are hard done by in the current circumstances is to get cash, to get it quickly, as quickly as they possibly can. And that means from the moment you are entitled to a sum of cash and you can prove it, you should be able to get it from a lender, to be able to get an advance from someone for a fee. Now, that fee may be considered more expensive than a lot of people would like, but that's not the main concern of the person that's affected at a particular point in time. The main concern is how can I get that liquidity as quickly as possible? So this discussion about whether we should have prepaid cards or checks, I think it's important for the future. And I think it illustrates just the general slowness of government institutions in getting anything running in less than two months, uh, particularly now. Uh, but it's, it's beside the point. Diego Zuluaga is Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 